0: Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by His Spirit, will use His Word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemernoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemernoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning again. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is Josh McQuaid. I'm the director of youth and mission here, and it really is a privilege to, to be able to preach for you this morning while Slate is away. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at the first four verses of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. I will talk about why in just a second. Um, but if you want to look there in your bulletin or turn in the Pew Bible, we'd love to. Uh, to have you do that. Um, we've already said this again, but I think this helps set up our sermon time this morning. Uh, this is the first Sunday in, in Ordinary Time. Uh, and so the season of Ordinary Time is really this time where we are reminded that Christ ascended into heaven and where he reigns on our behalf. And so this, uh, this season of Ordinary Time is going to take us a long time through the year. And we're going to be in a series in the book of Daniel for most of Ordinary Time. Uh, but we really wanted Slate, who's going to preach during that, to start it next week week when he's back. So we're going to pause that And today we're gonna be looking at the book of Hebrews for just one week and one week only. It's really just a a kind of a taste of Hebrews. So if you like this, you know where to get it. You can go and read it yourself. Uh, But Hebrews is this really lovely book. And I think it's a really perfect way for us to introduce ordinary time. Because if ordinary time is about Christ seated and reigning, that's really what this text is about this morning, about Christ seated and reigning, having completed uh, purification for sins on our behalf. So that's what we're gonna be thinking about this morning. So with that, let's look at Hebrews uh, chapter 1 and 2. And like I said, we're going to look at the first four verses of 1, the first four verses of 2. And The reason we're going to do this is because uh, they kind of form a, a bookend around the thought that opens this book. So we're going to kind of think about that whole opening thought by looking at these eight verses. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray as we consider this word. Lord, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear the word that you've spoken today, uh, that you would take this word and that you would not leave it on the page, that you would not leave it in the air, but that you would plant it down deep in our hearts and that you would change us by it, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, in August of last year, the New York Times ran an article uh, under a headline that I thought was pretty provocative. They said, God is dead. So is the office. These people want to save both. Uh, and the article goes on to talk about this growing industry of people that are so-called divinity consultants. Uh, they're being invited in to corporate America uh, to help create rituals that would bring meaning and purpose back into the lives of the workers that are in corporate America, because as they're finding, nobody goes to church anymore. uh, And so we're all lacking purpose and meaning. And so they're seeking these consultants to bring that purpose back. Uh, And so these are the opening paragraphs, which I love of this article. In the beginning, there was COVID-19 and the tribe of the white collars rent their garments for their work days were a formless void and all their rituals were gone. New routines came to replace the old, but the routines were scattered and there was chaos around how best to exit a Zoom or onboard an intern or end a work week. And the article goes on, it says, the adrift may yet find purpose for a new corporate clergy has arisen to formalize the remote work life. They go by different names, they're ritual consultants, they're sacred designers, they are soul-centered advertisers, they have degrees from divinity schools, and their business is borrowing from religious tradition to bring spiritual richness to corporate America. Uh, I have a lot of questions about this. Um, and there's we're kind of laughing but the point of this illustration is not to make fun of the people that do this work Uh, the point of the illustration is not even to make fun of the people who hire them to come in and do their work but it is to illustrate this point that no matter who we are no matter what we believe no matter what our background is we all have this deep spiritual longing within ourselves And it's a longing that is craving for someone to speak to us from beyond ourselves, maybe from beyond the world. And when this longing isn't met, we're left really disoriented and we're left really thin uh, and, and really confused and scattered. And so we go and look for this longing to be met. We look for it in our work. We look for it in our family or in our friends. Maybe we look for it in hobbies or in the stuff that we acquire. But what we learn in the world is that when we declare God to be dead, as the world sort of has for a long time, what we find is that our need for God is still very much alive. Even when we say God is dead and we pretend to live as if he's dead, we find that we are very much in need of him. And so this morning, I want us to turn to these opening chapters of the book of Hebrews, because even though it's a very ancient book, I think the context of this book is actually really similar to where we find ourselves today because Hebrews is written to a Christian community that had begun to go down the way of Jesus, but now they're thinking of turning back and now they're thinking of looking to find life somewhere else in another world. Uh, And for them, their particular temptation is maybe different than ours. Their temptation was to turn away from Jesus and to go back to Judaism, to the world uh, of temples and sacrifices and rituals that they had known when they were Jews. we don't really know why they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Maybe it was that they were experiencing some persecution as, as living as Christians in the world, and so that was making them want to go back to the safer confines of Judaism. Uh, maybe they had become disillusioned following Jesus and living amongst his people. We're not always the easiest people to live with. Maybe that's what it was, and they thought, I, there's other people over there that are better. Uh, maybe they were just drawn by the memories of what they knew, and it was just very familiar, and they just wanted to go back to what they knew. We really don't know. We don't know what was drawing them back. But something was attracting them to go back to Judaism. And so they were being tempted to stop in the way of Jesus and to turn away and to make their own way in the world. And so the author of Hebrews writes this book urging them not to go. He urges them to continue on in the way of Jesus. Um, And we're not going to do it because we don't have time. Again, it's just one sermon, not a series of sermons. But if we had time, what we would do, we would go through the book of Hebrews and we'd show you how again and again, the author of Hebrews invites the hopes that his audience think they're going to find apart from Jesus. He invites them to think about Moses or the temple or the sacrifices. And again and again, what he says is, Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better high priest. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice and the better temple, and he offers the true and better hope. And so what he's doing as he goes through this book is he's just pulling the curtains back, and he's letting the light of Jesus' story flood in again and kind of like wash over all of their hopes, all of their expectations, and he's showing them again, Jesus is the real thing, and if you turn from him, you're going to miss it. That's what he's doing throughout this whole book. And so his basic point that he gets at again and again in this book is that in the midst of our longing, in the midst of all of our searching for meaning, God has spoken already. We go out looking for meaning. We look for it in all these places, but he says again and again, God has spoken. And so this claim Uh, We see this claim right in the very first words of our text. So chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so the point really is for the book of Hebrews that God has spoken, and since he has spoken, we really must pay attention to what we have heard in him. So if God has spoken, then our search for meaning, our search for purpose, our search for all of the righteousness that we would get for ourselves is a search that can end because God has spoken, so we must pay attention to him. And so that's kind of our point this morning. That's our big point that God has spoken, and so we must pay attention to him. Um, But this morning, we're not going to have one point. We're not going to have two points. It's a new day at Redeemer. We're going to have four whole points. And I know, buckle up. Uh, It it, it won't take any longer, I promise. But we're going to have four points. Uh, And our, our points today are that when God speaks, he speaks personally. He speaks directly. He speaks declaratively. And he speaks certainly. So God has spoken, and when he speaks, he speaks personally, directly, uh, declaratively, and certainly. So God has spoken personally. Uh, The fact that God has spoken personally is actually a really important point for us, uh, because I think all of us here would probably agree that truth matters. What's real in the world matters. But I think what's also true for us is that many of us think of truth as something that primarily we need to wrap our minds around. Uh, We tend to think of truth as something that's fundamentally propositional. And so we elevate philosophies, or we elevate theories about life uh, to the highest place in our lives. And so we kind of give them this fundamental importance. We think that if we can just understand what's happening, if we can just know what facts are true, then we can figure everything else out from there. If I can get my facts straight, then everything else will fall into place. And this comes out even in our language. Um, So we need to face the facts Right? We need to deal with the facts of life, and as a matter of fact, we need to get our facts straight. So we go and we fact check, and we push for hard facts, and we don't let people get away with alternative facts. Um, we seek to separate fact from fiction, even if sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. And so the point is, we love ideas, <laughs> we love facts, we love propositions, and we tend to think that all knowing is bound up with having all of the facts straight. Now, I'm definitely not saying that facts don't matter. I'm definitely not saying the propositional truth doesn't matter. But what I am saying is that there's more to knowing than just having your facts straight. Um, Think about it this way. If you know about friendship, but you have no friend, do you really know about friendship? You know the theories of how to be a good friend, what it means to be a bad friend. But you don't really know what it means to live as a friend until you have a friend that you live with. And you could say the same thing about marriage, right? You can read Keller's book on marriage. It's great. You can read lots of great things on marriage. But until you live day in and day out with a spouse, there's something that you don't know yet about what it means to be married. And so the point is, there are some kinds of knowledge that we only know relationally. We only know personally. And so I think it's really important then that when Hebrews talks about the fact that God has spoken, the first thing the book tells us is that God has spoken not in abstractions, he hasn't spoken in philosophies, he hasn't even spoken in theological systems, but he's spoken by his son. He's spoken personally. And this is what the Apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel is getting at when he says that the word took on flesh And dwelled among us. The pre existed, the word that existed from all before time, he took on flesh and he dwelled among us and we have seen his glory. And then the apostle unpacks this even more in the first chapter of his epistle when he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, what John is saying is that God spoke personally. He spoke through a man. He spoke through Jesus who came and lived and walked and dwelled among us. And what he's saying is we, the apostles, we lived with him. We saw him. We got to know him. We we touched him. We heard him. We lived with him. And the effect of all of that was not just that we know about God, that we now know facts about him, but we actually have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. And so what the New Testament is saying, what the Bible really is saying, what Hebrews is saying, is that God has spoken a word to us that is personal. And Hebrews has the same idea in mind in our text when in chapter two, verse three, he says uh, that this message of salvation that he's talking about, this message of salvation was first declared by the Lord And it was attested to us by the apostles who lived with Jesus. He's saying this is a personal relational message. That God speaks through the person, the life, the work, the story, really, of Jesus. So the word that God has spoken isn't just a word of theory. It's not just a checklist. But it's actually a word of a story of Jesus who comes and lives with us. And so what this tells us is that not just Uh, that we may know facts about God, but that we actually have received God speaking to us so that we may know him, not just know about him. God hasn't just spoken to inform us, to give us information for our brains. He has spoken so that we may dwell with him, so that he could be our God and so that we could be his people. And I think This might sound like really theoretical maybe, ironically, Um, but I think this is a word of really good news for anybody who lives in the world and knows what it is to be lonely. If you live and know loneliness, God has spoken in his son and he has come to dwell with you and to speak to you personally. Um, And if you live in the world and you know abandonment, God has come to speak to you and he's drawn near in his son And he has come to be with you. And if you live in the world and you've ever been hurt or you know suffering, God has spoken to you. He has come and he's drawn near to you and his son. And so I think this is a really important word for us that God has not just spoken in abstractions, but he's spoken uh, personally. I think this is also really important for all of us who like to boil down our faith uh, to just theological systems or to confessions of faith. Because the truth is that some of us love to talk about God, but we don't really want God to call us to repentance. But when God speaks to us personally, when he speaks to us by his son, he doesn't leave us alone. He calls us to dwell with him and to draw near to him and to be confronted with him, not just with ideas about him. So God has spoken to us personally, not just in abstractions. Uh, But I think it's also important for us to recognize that when God speaks through his son, he's also speaking to us directly. Uh, And what's important here is he's not speaking through a mediator, through the prophets, maybe, or through angels. He's not speaking through a third party, but he's speaking directly to us. And I think this really matters to us because none of us want to base our lives on secondhand information. Right? We all want to know what's real and what's true. We want to get it straight from the horse's mouth, right? And so uh, if God has really come into the world, then that changes everything. And this is exactly the point that Hebrews is making, that God came into the world himself. He didn't just send someone to speak for him. Uh, And this is the point that he makes when he says that Jesus created the whole world and that he continues to preserve the world. This is in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he tells us that it was through the Son that he created the world. And then again, he says that it's the Son who upholds the universe, the whole universe, by the word of his power. And then in case we missed the point, in case we weren't sure what any of that meant, he goes one step further when he says that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, the point that Hebrews is making is that Jesus isn't just the prophet who came and spoke in the Old Testament. He isn't even just like the angels who were glorious and majestic and came and told us the truth. He is actually God himself who came directly to speak to us. And for obvious reasons, this has been really hard for people to believe (laughs) over the years, right? Uh, So again, if we go back to John's gospel, John chapter 5 verse 18 tells us that this claim that Jesus is God is actually the reason that Jesus was crucified. Um, John tells us in 5.18, he says, This was why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus all the more, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father. He was making himself equal with God. And then not only in Jesus's life, but throughout all of church history, uh, people stood up again and again and said, this is too much to believe. We can't believe that Jesus is God. And so all of these teachings have come throughout all of church history, seeking to lead God's people astray and say, like, Jesus is just a man. Um, but as you can imagine, this is not a little, a little point. <laughs> this is not a point of like small importance. This is a really big deal because the difference between Jesus being a guy who tells us about God. And the, di- the difference between that and Jesus being God is huge. Because if the former is true, then no matter how right or encouraging we think Jesus might be, he might be wrong. And no matter how much you like me or no matter how much you like this church, uh, there's really nothing to keep you here because it might all just be made up. Jill Peeler told me one time in words that I have probably quoted to many of you many times because I think they're so great. She said, you know, if what we talk about here is not true, then we should probably just stop and all go to brunch, right? But if Jesus is really God, if Jesus really is the radiance of the glory of God, if he's really the exact imprint of his nature, if he really did make all things, and if he really does uphold the universe by the word of his power, then God has spoken directly to us, and that changes everything, and we have to pay attention. So God has spoken personally. God has spoken directly. He came and spoke to us himself, Uh, but in revealing himself, it's also important that we see that what God has, has said is he has spoken a word that's declarative. He's told us what he has done for us. And this is really important because this is sort of the linchpin of Hebrews' whole argument. Because if you remember, the audience that the author is writing to, he's writing to people who are considering turning away from Jesus and going back to Judaism. And so they're being really tempted to look at Moses' law and to uphold that. Uh, They're being tempted to go back to the temple with its systems of sacrifices uh, that that carried on, that had been going on for years and years and years and would never stop. And so they were being tempted to go back to these things. But Hebrews will say later on in this book that the whole point of all of that system was to be like a shadow that would draw your eye forward to the thing that was real, to the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the law and the temple and the sacrifices, the author can tell us, these really are places that God spoke, but these are places where God spoke a word of promise, looking to the future. And in Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus, God has now spoken a final word, a word of fulfillment, a completed word. And I know that when we talk about the Old Testament system, when we talk about sacrifices, this feels really weird and foreign. Most of us here are not being tempted to go to to Judaism and to look at these sacrifices. That's a very foreign world to us. So I think it's important for us to remember what it is about these things that was so important, what, what it was about them that was so true. And the first thing we have to remember is that the sacrificial system didn't come up out of nowhere. It didn't come up as an arbitrary thing to make people feel better about themselves or to help people have a system to order their lives. The Old Testament sacrificial system came up, and it was based on the truth that all wrongdoing must be paid for. All wrongdoing requires payment, and we know this to be true. Uh, If I steal from you, I don't make it right by just giving you back the thing that I stole from you. I have to actually give you more because I've, I've damaged you. I've taken from you, and I have to make it right. I have to pay you not just restore to you what I took. Uh, If I go out in the world and I smear your name and I go tell all these stories about you to make you look bad, I can't just then come and privately apologize to you. I have to go out in the world and I have to undo the damage that I did. I have to pay back what I stole from you, right? And so all wrongdoing requires payment. And when when our wrongdoing goes against God and his law, the only payment that works, the only payment that's adequate is death, and that kind of catches us in our tracks because we think, what well, does that mean that God is just this bloodthirsty deity that's out for, out for vengeance? And that's not it at all. The point is, the reason that wrongdoing against God requires death is that God made a world that was full of life, and God gave us his law and invited us to walk in his ways and to be people of life in the world. And so when we go against God and when we go against his ways, we are bringing death into his world. And so if all wrongdoing requires payment, and if wrongdoing against God is the highest form of this bringing death into the world, then the only payment for this is death. But mercifully, God has told us that he's not only a just God that requires payment to be made for sin, but he's also a merciful God who desires to save sinners. And so in his mercy and his kindness, he sets up a system, the sacrificial system to allow his people to dwell with him in the world. But again, we're confused by this system, right? We think, okay, it was sort of like it looked like what Jesus would do and so that's what made it effective. Or there was some power like in these sacrifices and that's why God said, well, that's good enough, but I'll show you the real thing later. That's not it at all. What the Bible tells us is that the only sacrifice that God has ever accepted for sin is the sacrifice that he makes himself when he comes in Jesus and when he dies for us. And so the point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is to be this interim, providentially supplied way that God's people before Jesus could tap into the faithfulness of God in his sacrifice in Jesus. And they could have that at work in their lives even then. And this is exactly the point that Hebrews is going to go on to make in chapters 9 and 10 when he says this. He says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And Hebrews tells us that it's by Jesus' sacrifice that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in our text, the the author's making the very same point in chapter one, verse three, when he says, after making purification of sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What he's saying is, Jesus has finished the work. There's no more sacrifice that's needed. There's no more work that is needed. Jesus has completed it. And so what Hebrews is saying is that when God speaks, God speaks of what he has done for us. And this is really surprising to us because the Bible also tells us a lot of things that we must do. And so sometimes that's all we hear. All we hear are God's laws and his commandments. And we forget that these are a way of life that don't come before what God has done for us, but flow from what God has done for us. When God speaks to us, he declares a finished work done in Jesus. And he invites us to cling to Jesus and to look to him. Because he's declared what's been done, not demanding what we must do. And so God speaks a personal word. He speaks a direct word. He speaks a declarative word about all that he has done for us. And lastly, he speaks a word that is certain, a word that is guaranteed, that's not conjecture or opinion, but is certain. And we see this in our text in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 2, when the author says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so the point that the author is making here is he's saying, if all that was said in the Old Testament, the message that was delivered by angels, if that proved to be a certain word, and it did, Because we know what happened when Israel went against that. They were driven into exile. They saw the the certainty of that word that they stood against. If that proved to be reliable, he's saying, how much more reliable is the word that God now speaks through his son? The point that Hebrews is making here is this really dramatic point. He's saying, because God has spoken, we can be absolutely certain that what he has said is true. And I think this is dramatic because we live in a world that questions, I don't know, everything. (laughs) Uh, We don't know what's true anymore when we go out into the world. Everything is called into question. And I think even more so, uh, the truth that we think that we've inherited from the past, that's come from tradition, and if it's come from institutions, it's called into question. And some of that's for good reason, And so I think it's important that we be reminded that what Hebrews is saying here is not that the church has spoken, and so you must listen to the church. And it's not that this guy has said something, or that person has said something, and so you must listen to them. The point that Hebrews is making is that God has spoken himself in Jesus. And if there's anything in the world that can be certain, then it must be the word that God has spoken by his son. And so in light of all of this, the words that come at the beginning of chapter 2 will be our closing word this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Uh, remember that our original audience was considering turning back to Judaism away from Jesus. They were considering turning away from the true word and giving themselves again to all of the things that foreshadowed God uh, and the certainty of his word in Jesus. They were considering turning away from the fulfilled, completed word and back to the word of promise. And so I think for us today, just as it was for them, the word that we all need to hear Whether we are here as those who are part of the church, whether we are here as those who have never been a part of the church, the word that comes to us is the same word that came to them. We must pay much closer attention to all that we have heard in God and in his son. And I think what this means for us is that even though there are so many things that demand our attention in the world, we must pay attention to Jesus. We must listen to him and to the word that he has spoken. And what what makes this interesting or complicated, maybe messy a little bit, is that paying more careful attention to Jesus sometimes is going to look different for different ones of us. And that shouldn't be surprising because we're all tempted to turn away from Jesus by different idols. We're all tempted by different things. We're attracted to different false gods. But the message is the same. Whatever the thing is that attracts you, that distracts you, that tempts you away from Jesus, we must pay more careful attention to him. And so for some of us, paying more careful attention to Jesus will mean paying less attention to our work. And I know that sounds crazy because we're Americans and we love to work and we're Christians and we value work, but the reality is that our work can become an idol for us and it can be a thing that we grasp onto and we cling to to define who we are and to give us all that we need in the world. And so we look to it for our status and for our righteousness and to give us certainty in the world. And so we miss the certainty of the word that the Father has spoken through the Son to us. For some of us, paying more careful attention to Jesus, this is a surprising one, will mean paying less attention to our church traditions. I love our church traditions, they're fantastic. Believe me, I've I've memorized a lot of the Westminster Catechism and it's fantastic, it's really beautiful. But you cannot preach this text. You cannot preach Hebrews 1 without saying that a primary warning in this text is that it is possible for our traditions to replace Jesus in our lives. And it's possible for us to give more careful attention to our traditions than we give to Jesus. And so part of the reminder that we need this morning is we need to be reminded that our traditions are only useful to us when they help us proclaim Jesus faithfully. And when they go off from Jesus and they lead us away from him, we must pay more careful attention to Jesus, not to our traditions. And so for some of us, paying more careful attention to Jesus will mean paying less attention to the status that we can make for ourselves in the world. For some of us, paying more careful attention to Jesus will mean paying less attention to the status that we can achieve for our children as we pour ourselves into them and set up their lives so that they can succeed. For some of us, paying more careful attention to Jesus will mean paying less attention to culture wars that cry out for me to flex my muscles, for me to draw attention to myself, and we must pay more careful attention to Jesus and hold him up and hold up his word that the world would see him, not that the world would see us. And for some of us, the call to pay more careful attention to Jesus is a call to pay less attention to all the people in the world who we think need to just be put in their place and just listen to us but for all of us, whether you're there or whether I didn't talk to you in that section, all of us need uh, this word. We need to be reminded that God has spoken a word about himself by his son. He has declared for us all that he has done for us, and he has invited us to cling to his son. And this is a certain word that can hold up to all of your hope, that will never disappoint. So let's pay much closer attention to the son who has spoken to us a certain word of hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have spoken, uh, that you have spoken clearly, that you uh, have spoken through Jesus, that you have accomplished the work for us and that nothing uh, else needs to be added to that. We're thankful to that, for that and we're thankful uh, for all that you've done. And Lord, again, we just pray that you would cause your word to leave the page uh, and to enter into our hearts that by your spirit, you would build us up more and more to make us more and more like Jesus in this world, we pray in your name, amen. (laughs)